0: As we were in the midst of the pandemic, uh, you know, we had a budget cut here, twenty million dollars to our campus, plus huge losses in auxiliaries and other things. We brought the whole leadership team together to do scenario planning about how would we make budget cuts, and we thought through that, and it became really obvious to everybody that a budget cut to one division, whether it's an academic division or IT, you know, or student affairs has downstream effects on every other part of the university. And so that collaborative process of sharing, well, this is what we'd cut at 5%. This is how we'd make a 10% or a 15% cut. You know, that was really, uh, really informative to do that as a team. Luckily, we didn't have to do all that. We, we instead managed to uh, um, take the cuts as one-time cuts, not as permanent cuts. And that was a bet that played out for us.
1: Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is a podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders that will help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. Each week, I partner with a journalist to have a conversation with a sitting college president, chancellor, system leader, or someone in the broader ecosystem who's really an inspiring leader. And the goal is to have a conversation to distill their perspective and their insights gathered from their leadership journey. Our hope is that this is inspiring and gives you something to look forward
2: to each week.
1: This episode, my co-host is Inside Higher Ed co-founder and CEO, Doug Lederman.
2: Uh, today's guest is the Chancellor of the University of California, Santa Cruz, uh, Cindy Le, uh, LaRive. Uh, before she became Chancellor there, she was Provost at the University of California, Riverside. And I understand from Bridget that she's uh, got a very interesting backstory. So welcome. Welcome to the program. Thanks for being here.
0: Thanks, Doug. Bridget, great to be here.
1: For those of you who don't know, so President Larive, or Chancellor LaRive. When I first met her, she was the liaison to uh, for the UIA at UC Riverside. That was my first uh, engagement with her. And then later she wanted to be the provost. But I think I want to just start there in terms of Cindy, you have had um, you're the only person who has had this specific journey to the chancellorship. And I think it's a really powerful example. So other people out there don't think that you need to camp out for 20 30 years in administration. And so you only had really three administrative roles before b- including chancellor, is that true?
0: Oh, no, I had a few. I became department chair in 2012, and then went from there to being associate dean for physical sciences and mathematics. I was interim dean, and then I was vice provost for undergraduate education. That was the most fun job I had. And then uh provost and EDC and, and then chancellor. So that happened. Over about seven years
1: so seven years of administrative you know trajectory but otherwise you were a faculty member you were a, you were a very involved and engaged faculty member and then you decided at some point that administration was perhaps you know I'm curious about that that decision because I know a lot of people do see it as kind of like you know the dark side is a negative reference but um, did something happen that made you all of a sudden willing to do that or is it you just slowly started getting tapped?
0: Well, it's interesting. I, I Actually, I, I started my academic career at the University of Kansas, and I'm a chemist. When I was about 40, I got asked if I wanted to go to some leadership academy. And I thought about it. I talked to my husband, and I thought, no, I don't think that's for me. I really like doing science, and I was running a big lab, and and so I turned it down. And then, uh, you know, a couple times along along my journey, I, I sort of wondered, well, you know, maybe I should have done that. Uh, maybe... I, you know, I missed that opportunity, but then I I just sort of focused in on trying to make a difference, trying to make an impact and doing that through a variety of roles as faculty member. I was pretty engaged in, you know, my department and my university and in a variety of different ways. And then when I became department chair, actually discovered I could, I could make things happen that were good for my department and for my colleagues and our students. And so that changed my perspective a little bit. Um, I still continued my lab actually up until right before I came to UC Santa Cruz. It sort of attrited over time. Now I'm not a practicing chemist anymore, but I, I really enjoy trying to make uh, the university a place where other people can succeed and, and focus on research and teaching.
2: I mean, it's it's a really interesting way of framing it, and I think there, like so many things in our society these days, there tends to be this sort of increasing sort of bifurcation and a lot of suspicion, and what messages would you share with faculty members who are fully committed to their research and their teaching, and what administrative work can do? What are the the positives about it, since we, we hear a lot about the negatives?
0: The way I frame it, Doug, is that it may not be the thing for you right now right, and uh, to to really not close those doors. I think that faculty are leaders and they exercise leadership in so many ways. Every time I step in front of a classroom, I'm the leader of that classroom, of that experience. Through our research, we're leaders. Through our engagement with our professional communities, we're leaders. So faculty is a leadership role. And I think that uh, I prefer to talk about leadership rather than administration. So administration connotes bureaucracy. There is some bureaucracy to running a university. It's true. We can't escape that. It's one of the things that make things go right at the university. But by leading, you actually empower others to help join you in transformation. That's exciting. I think often about this transformational power that universities have. That's a reason to get engaged and to think about uh, leadership and, and to partner with your leaders. We can do more together when we come together to work on behalf of our mission.
1: That's great. I was thinking about, you know, in conversation with you previously, I, I mentioned that, you know, you're in a unique position because being at a UC chancellor, your former boss is now your peer on this on this council. I assume you guys operate as a council. What's that like? Uh, I'm curious. And then in general, it brought up for you how to drive collaboration on campus as well. So I'd love to get your your take, though, on that first piece.
0: Oh, well, thanks. Thanks, Bridget. So Kim Wilcox is, uh, is the chancellor at UC Riverside. This is my former boss. Uh, he's a great friend and mentor. But, you know, all the way along, probably it stems from my feelings as a faculty member, right? All the way along, I haven't thought about having a boss. You know, when you're a faculty member, you're you're your own boss. And I I think about that, uh, you know, even now I have a boss, it's President Drake, president of the UC system. But I think that way I engage is in partnership. And so if you think about your boss as your partner and that your job is to work with your partner to have impact, to make change, to do good things, that's a very different way of thinking than uh, I have to make my boss, you know, happy or like me. Uh, really, your partners in in transformation.
2: How do you reflect that as now the boss of other people? How do you try and get them to think about you that way?
0: Yeah, thank you. I. I um, it's probably, it's probably hard, I suppose, for some people, but, you know, I, I'm a pretty approachable person, I think. And um, when I started, when I became provost, I sort of thought to myself, you know, I don't know how to be a provost. All I really know how to do is to run a research group. So I I sort of acted as provost like I was running my research group. And when you have a big research group, you have a whole group of people who come together, you think together. Sometimes it's the sophomore who's doing undergraduate research in your lab who comes up with a, a question that Everybody else knows too much to to ask. And that question can spark a conversation that really gives you a whole new paradigm to think about. So I think it is listening deeply, it's engaging with others, it's valuing collaboration and partnership, and trying to encourage everybody else on the leadership team to work together in a solutions oriented way.
1: I love that. And I love the. um idea that you expressed, um, you've done before and today about that. You never really saw yourself as having a boss, that you were always your own boss, but the the people you work for are your partners. And I just think that's a really refreshing way to, to look at your career because at the end of the day, you are the only one who's really responsible for it. And I'm just thinking about how people talk about, you know, struggling to connect with different generations. That might be a perspective that would be more valuable um, for younger generations that are not as, as inclined towards the kind of hierarchical approach of, you know, higher ed traditionally.
0: Yeah, I mean, another way to think about it is that you're controlling your own destiny, right? And we do hear that narrative by by people who want to be in control of their future, of their destiny. It's another way to think about it. When I think about saying, I'm in control of my own destiny, that sounds lonely, right? How do you accomplish things all by yourself? The way you do it is by partnering with other people and and then really being able to, to move an agenda
1: forward. So I did want to ask you about what you've learned. So you were someone who, when I first engaged with you, I was, you were just your humility and you're just kind of, you are incredibly approachable. You seem like the most normal person and none of the pomp and circumstance of, of higher ed has changed you, which is really refreshing. And it makes you a great collaborator. I would say as a peer, I've seen that with your um, your allies on other campuses, but I'm curious about now that you're the boss who tries to get people to collaborate inside your own institution, I'm just curious what you've learned about that experience and what things really work for you. Well, you
0: know, I think that uh, well, well, one thing that works for me is I have an amazing leadership team, right? So having people and hiring people who have a collaborative mindset, who are solutions oriented, and want to work together to make positive impact, you know, that's that's helpful. You know, we have a good team. Um, one of the things that we did as we were in the midst of the pandemic uh, you know we had a budget cut here 20 million dollars to our campus plus huge losses in auxiliaries and other things we brought the whole leadership team together to do scenario planning about how would we make budget cuts and we thought through that and it became really obvious to everybody that a budget cut to one division whether it's an academic division or i.t you know or student affairs has downstream effects on every other part of the university. And so that collaborative process of sharing, well, this is what we'd cut at five percent, this is how we'd make a ten percent or a fifteen percent cut. you know that was really uh really informative to do that as a team. Luckily, we didn't have to do all that we We instead managed to uh, um, take the cuts as one- time cuts, not as permanent cuts, and that was a bet that played out for us. But that process of thinking that through together, under duress, right, um, uh, really, I think, brought the leadership team closer together and gave people an a, a appreciation for the contributions that others make.
2: We've talked a lot on this, these programs about sort of what leaders have learned from the pandemic, and I think you just offered one sense. How else has the pandemic changed your view of your own work and also your view of how to lead?
0: It, it's been an interesting experience and we, we realized that some of those hierarchical modes of operation, Bridget, that you alluded to, don't work very well in a pandemic. We had to bring together teams with different expertise and be able to make decisions uh, in real time and then uh, translate those decisions into actions and then be able to communicate broadly about what we were doing. You know, that's a different paradigm than universities typically operate under, which is more a group of of sort of select people get together, make a decision, and it kind of trickles down. That's actually not a very effective way to get buy-in or to operate with speed and scale. So we learned those lessons because we had to. It was um, important and we had to do it timely. Now we can take those lessons and the way of operation, which is bringing people together by expertise, not just by position and involving uh, them in decision making and then translating that decision into action and communicating about it. That we can do for student retention and success or for Organizing new research clusters, we can take that advantage and do it uh, in a more efficient way and in a more satisfying way that leads to action.
1: That's super helpful. So one thing I, I'm always curious about when I think about leadership, the, I think that the touchstones of kind of best things about it and and hardest things are give you a perspective of how the person thinks. So we've just been talking about hard things, so we can go there, which is as a as a leader what for you has been the hardest thing you've had to do and if you can share what you learned from it.
0: In the kind of the middle of the pandemic, um, we had a a complex of forest fires, wildfires that bore down on the campus, came within a mile and a half of our campus. We had evacuated um, and I was communicating every day to the campus and I was prepared to send a message that the campus. Uh, the fire had breached the campus. Luckily, kind of uh, by some miracle, the wind shifted overnight, and and the campus was spared. But that whole process of evacuating the trauma to people in our community, which still remains, we had a thousand people lose their homes. Uh, if, you know, we had staff members who were working to support evacuated students, while their whole own families were being evacuated. And then um, the process of bringing everybody. Back to campus, and and that was hard. That was the hardest thing that that we've done. That experience helped me really uh, get in touch with my own feelings, how I felt about our campus, and how valuable it is. And then really think about what is it that makes a university. I don't know if either of you have been to UC Santa Cruz. It's the most beautiful campus in the world, but. It helped me realize that it's not the buildings that make the university, really, right? It's the people that make the university, and that you put the people first. And I remember uh, Bridget uh, being at a UIA convening as part of a, I think, a leadership experience I had, where we had, uh, you know, the the president from Tulane came and talked about, you know, his experience of you know meeting in Houston and reimagining Tulane and. I thought about that a lot while we were evacuated for the wildfire. What would we do? Luckily, we didn't have to go there.
2: Uh, You were talking about the people. um, I just recorded a podcast about turnover and uh, morale, emotional and psychological and workplace experiences that a, a lot of people are struggling with right now. And I guess I'm interested in how you are motivating your your campuses most uh, mostly thinking about the employees i guess but how how you are thinking about keeping people engaged focused on on what they have to do today hopeful about about what's ahead how you're juggling all that the complicated nature of our of how we think about our work these days
0: yeah you know for for me um It's the transformational power of higher education, right? Higher education changed my life from a low-income, first-generation college student. Uh, We do that every day at universities, right? And and it is that mission of access, of opportunity, of of forward-looking change that I think helps us stay focused on our work because our work really matters. The issues that you alluded to though, Doug, really are something I've been thinking a lot about. I think we're all thinking about it. It's the changing nature of work. So if you're at a largely residential campus where students expect a high touch experience, you know, how, do we, how do we continue uh, to deliver uh, those experiential opportunities that that in-person education mixed with some remote and hybrid and online educational opportunities. But uh, at the same time, uh, value in-person, hybrid and fully remote work as it suits the job and keep our culture and stay uh, centered on our values. So I think we have to uh, value remote, hybrid and in-person work because it is going to be what's necessary for us to be an employer of choice, right? Our employees are going to demand that, want that as it suits the work. So then how do you retain your culture? How do you, how do you uh, keep collaboration going when not everybody is in person, not everybody's remote? I think it was easier for us when we were all remote, right? And so now, now we're, we're, We're grappling with that, I think we can manage it, but I I know we're not alone. I think that most of the tech companies I'm aware of in the Bay Area are all trying to struggle with this. And I think um, what it means is, is, I'm gonna come back to those ideas about collaboration and about impact. If we're really focused on impact, on delivering experience, delivering opportunity, delivering change that the country needs, then that can guide our work. And uh, our, our partnership can happen whether we're do, in partnership together um, across the table or together across the, the Zoom screen. So uh, I'm, I'm energized by that. We're trying to think about how to, to navigate it in, in a, as we've emerged from the pandemic and to uh, help everybody feel valued and part of a team.
1: It's interesting. As as you were talking about that, it made me realize that, you know, your example of the fire in particular, you know, when you get back to that space Mm -hmm. that we all were not, I mean, that's a way extreme example, but thinking about March of, of 2020, how we, you know, turned a light switch of everyone going home. And I think that we went through a process of winnowing what was necessary, what was most essential, right? And in the process, what we did is, I don't think we recognize that as we winnowed, you know, I guess we don't need to commute. I guess we don't need to be in the office. I guess I don't need all these things. There wasn't as much of a um, distilling for kind of like a sifting for the stuff that was that we needed to not remove. It's the things that the burnout epidemic is really, um, you know, it's really about lack of purpose. Uh, inspiration and community in our work. Those are the three essential elements. And technology is a modality to get those. It, It can help you get those in person is modality to get those. But in general, I don't think we spent enough time prioritizing those three things. They felt like soft and squishy when we were talking about life and death. Those are the things that we have to figure out how to weave into our work, whether it's hybrid, whether it's remote, whether it's in person, because that consistently is actually what it is. And I just, I think about that, um, that rushed moment and missing a signal of the stuff that we should have focused on, which are those three things. Um, but I don't think that we've lost uh, too much in, in that, in terms of ground. I think we can recapture it. It's just focusing on those three things.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, and, uh, and understanding that they won't be the same for every person.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? It is a, it is going to be a matrix of possibilities and, and, feelings and communities and inspirations across the university.
1: I did want to ask you, um, and I think perhaps maybe, maybe this is obvious, but uh, what has been the most surprising thing for you about your career?
0: I think the most surprising uh, thing about my career is that I am in this position and that I enjoy it. I would not have predicted that you know, even 15 years ago. It's a, it's a great opportunity to lead a campus and to be part of change. And uh, I, I really, I really enjoy it.
1: I wanted to know if there is, um, we always ask people about the best advice that has served them in their careers. And I'm curious if you have any one piece of advice someone else gave you that you've used as a touchstone and who it came from.
0: Well, yeah, the best advice I got came from um, a mentor of mine at the University of Kansas. His name was Ted Koana, and he was a kind of senior faculty member who took me under his wing. and And he told me, "You have to remember that uh, it's not about science; it's it's all about the people. That the people are the most important thing." So I try to 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 keep that to heart. And I think it is true. It is true. If you put the people first in making difficult decisions and planning for the university, then pretty much everything else will fall into place. So it was good advice.
1: That is great advice. Um, and I'm curious as folks reach out to you and seek um, your counsel, because again, well, I mean, especially after today, people are going to know uh, the people who thought that they missed the boat on administration or that because they're passionate, uh, just as passionate as you voiced about being a faculty member, that they, they may not be interested in this. Now, they have this new model of seven years of administrative work and chancellor, right? Um, I'm curious about what advice you give them.
0: To be open and and to let other people know you're interested you know we have a number of programs in the uc system we have a program called coro which is a is a kind of bring people together around collaborative leadership the uh ace ace has a fellows program a faculty fellows program so there are a lot of opportunities i think to be able to to be able to kind of show that you're interested and to get those opportunities, but also, um, you know, focus on making a difference. When somebody needs a chair for a task force or a committee, so volunteer, step forward. Um, don't just be the person left standing because everybody else step, stepped back, right? Um, but but uh, I think if you can do those things um, and show that you're a solutions-oriented, good partner, uh, opportunities can come your way.
1: I think that's the perfect advice for us to end today. I hope that has been um, inspiring to you all at home. Um, Chancellor Larive. it is a delight to have you on. Thanks for being willing to share your story and impart your wisdom. Uh, Doug, as always, thanks for being a great co-host. And for those of you at home, next week, we have the pleasure of having the new president of Georgia State, Brian Blake, will have a chance to speak with us for the first time. So um, tune in, same time, same place, and we hope you have a wonderful week.